1: Big week ahead for you. We could get a phase one trade deal signed, expecting that to happen this coming Wednesday. Also, bank earnings this week. J.P. Morgan City coming up tomorrow. Bank of America Goldman coming up Wednesday. Morgan Stanley coming up Thursday. We have limited time with our guest in the studio here in New York, so let's not waste any more of it. Richard Haas, Council on Foreign Relations president, joins us now. Ambassador, great to see you. Good morning. Richard, let's talk about what's happening in Tehran on the streets at the moment. Protests. We've seen a series of protests in Tehran over the last six months. They're all different. The backgrounds of the people on the streets are different, and we're trying to put one story together that paints a picture as to why each and every, every protest is happening. Can you do that in a place like Iran, in a place like Tehran?
2: No, because it's too big and too diverse of a, of a country. So you've had different protests. You had the gasoline prices. Now you have this, which is a, a government that's seen as not telling the truth, is remote. Uh, people are taking advantage of it to some extent, coming out in the streets. I think the, the real question for outsiders is how seriously to take it. And my own view is that And one level of me says, you you never know. But two, you can't count that somehow that the regime is somehow in in, in trouble. And I don't think it makes sense for anybody to base U.S. or Western policy on the idea that the regime is somehow uh, vulnerable.
3: Although, can we say that some of the damage that was reversed of the image of the United States... Following uh, the death of Soleimani, that that that's been reversed. In other words, that there has been a mood shift in the populace back toward the United States, away from the Iranian government, in light of how they handled this uh, particular incident.
2: I'd probably put it a little bit differently. Uh, over the last couple of decades, Iran has actually been one of the most pro-American countries in the, the populace, the po- the populace. Not, not
3: the government. <laughs> exactly.
2: So it's exactly right. It's the po- the populace. So I think this this is consistent with with that, the Soleimani thing. He was a, a cult figure in Iran. He was important not just to the government but to big chunks of the people. He had real street cred, as you say, because of his service, in particular during the Iran-Iraq war. But I do think what this shows is that for a chunk of the, say, roughly half, 40% of the Iranian population, this desire to be integrated in the world, to deal with countries like the United States is powerful. The problem is there's still at least, I would guess, half or more of the Iranian population that that is not a priority for them.
1: Richard, let's talk about forming a policy response down in Washington, D.C., How do we form some kind of policy response that puts pressure on the regime, but supports the population, the citizens of that country? Because right now the approach seems to be quite contradictory, not just from the United States, but from elsewhere too.
2: Uh, You're exactly right to use the word contradictory. It is. What I would do is go public with an offer to the Iranians and basically be explicit about what it is we want from them in the nuclear realm, the missile realm, in terms of their regional behavior, and say, here's the benefits that would accrue to you. Here's the sanctions relief that would come your way if you were to do certain things or stop doing other things. And I would make this public. I would basically then force the regime, force the government to explain to the Iranian people why it's not worth their while to accept a a degree of greater restraint. What I want to do is force the regime to take ownership of the economic problems in this country. And I think if we offer them a fair and reasonable deal, then it makes it much harder for them to to deal with the crowds in the street.
3: The feeling in markets right now is that the incident is over between Iran and the US. For the most part, de-escalation has occurred. We're seeing oil prices basically flat. Where should we be looking for the next flare up here?
2: I think the markets are getting ahead of themselves. Even, you know, the president the other day in his statement said that Iran has stood down. No, they haven't. What they, what Iran wants to do is avoid direct exchanges where they can be fingered for attacking American installations or American people, causing deaths of American soldiers or diplomats. Iran has not backed away, as best I can tell, from using indirect means, whether it's cyber, whether it's the militias. This is the this is Iran's standard operating procedure. So the idea that everyone's relaxed, no. Tomorrow you could have a problem with cyber or with a physical attack on a Saudi oil installation. So the markets are getting ahead of themselves.
1: Richard, I want to wrap things up with an important question, the comparisons that we keep hearing between North Korea and Iran. In The World of Disarray, your book, you talked about how in the early 90s you'd canceled those in power to strike North Korea before they had nuclear weapons. How problematic is the comparison between the North Korea of the 1990s and Iran in 2020?
2: Well, the North Korean uh, situation in the early 90s, they had one physical target at that time. There was one place where they had uranium. It was on the surface. We could we could get, do it. Now, the, even then, it was problematic, which is why we didn't do it. People were worried about a North Korean conventional military invasion of the South. Iran right now, you're talking about dozens mm-hmm. and dozens of sites. We don't, we don't necessarily know all of them. Many of them are hard to reach. And if we were to do it, not only would you have Iran retaliation around the region, you would probably have an Iranian reconstitution of their nuclear program. So so with North Korea, I counseled the, uh, then that we ought to do something. I thought that was our one moment. Risky, but our one moment. That moment has passed decidedly yeah. with North Korea. My sense is it's passed also with Iran.
0: Ambassador Haas, thank you so much. John, I should point out that Richard Haas has a new book coming out in four months. It's called Leaving the Television Set <laughs> When the 49ers Are 24 <laughs> Points Behind. I just want
3: to point out that his face, there was this moment of fear as he started to say that he had a new book coming out in four months. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you got I, up I left was excited the thinking there might actually you. be a new the rest
2: of America. I did get in the car. I said it was okay. The game was over. <laughs> and I had to listen to it on the radio, which is not even well, close. Not even close. Richard House, thank you so much. Thank I you, I think Richard. you've got a
0: little bit of company today uh, with that
1: key call as well. John? Richard House, the Council on Foreign Relations president now.
4: Bring Priya Misra, TD
1: Securities Head of Global Race Strategy in New York. Priya, it's interesting, the Monday after payrolls, and we haven't talked about payrolls yet, but there's a real debate as to what is happening beneath the labour market report. This is the take from Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari speaking to Reuters following the report. Quote, The fact that job growth appears to be more muted and wage growth is slowing doesn't tell me we are running out of workers. It tells me the underlying economy is slowing. Now, Priya, that's a real debate. Signs of full employment or signs of a slumming economy, what do you see Priya?
4: So I think I'm uh, more in the Kashkari camp. I think uh, you know there is a slowing in the economy. Um, now, to some extent, that slowing was expected. I mean, we shouldn't be growing above trend for for too long a period. The Fed did raise rates, uh, you know, in 2018. So it is slowing. I think the question is: Are we slowing below trend, or are we just slowing to trend? I think the Fed is really hoping that uh, all we're doing is, is slowing to trend growth, so they don't need to re- uh, they don't need to cut rates. I think it is interesting that Fed rhetoric of late is suggesting that they don't need to take back these insurance cuts that they put in place last year. So I think they're assuming that we get to trend and and rates are actually pretty fair. Our view is that we may be actually slowing below trend. And, and, and we're going to get signs of this uh, through the uh, course of the year. I think the labor market does tend to be a pretty lagging indicator. So it's not the first place you'll see it. I think PMIs are suggesting some slowing. But re- uh, really, that's the big debate in the macro community. Are we going below? In which case, Rates have a lot more room to decline, in which case the Fed will need to come back and start to add accommodation.
1: And you think the Fed does come back in Priya? When?
4: We do think. Um, So closer to the second half. And the reason for that is that the Fed has actually put a lot of stimulus in the system through the repo market. Now, I think they've absolutely succeeded in keeping that plumbing going. But the market does still see this a bit like QE, which is why financial conditions have eased significantly over the last six months. And so if this easing continues, and our view is that the repo support will actually remain in place all through the first half, then it's hard to see where that tightening in conditions comes in. What I'm getting uh, nervous about is when the Fed starts to pull back from the repo support, which they have to, The once they add enough reserves, does the market see this as while QE is ending, then do you get a tightening in financial conditions coupled with a slowing in the economy? That's when the Fed will need to come in and add more accommodation, not necessarily through repo, but I, uh, I think that's when they'll have to actually start to cut rates.
3: Priya, I'm wondering, a lot of people agree that the Fed was right to do the insurance cuts and that they're right to keep rates so low, given the fact that we're not seeing inflation. When does a conversation shift back to asset bubbles? When does it shift back to how much uh, the Fed stimulus and support is propping up valuations without necessarily adding to any kind of economic benefit here?
4: Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I think we've sort of uh, we've gone past that debate. I think the Fed has been saying that they're going to use macroprudential tools to try and offset these uh, or, or, or to prevent the asset bubbles. But the shift in the Fed language from let's help growth or, or, or let's help boost growth to let, let's help sustain expansions. Well, if the Fed is telling us they want to sustain expansions, that's inconsistent with getting some tightening in financial conditions. So I actually think they've, they've gotten past that hurdle. Now it's all about inflation. Right. And this is where this inflation framework review also becomes important. They're going to tell us sometime middle of this year that they want to let inflation overshoot, in which case you have to let the economy run a little hot yeah. and not worry about uh, asset bubbles.
0: Priam, is Misra, J.P. Morgan trotted out the correlation of the 10-year yield, the U.S. full faith and credit 10-year yield to the inverse of all that negative yielding debt out there. It is shockingly tight. Does negative yielding debt pull down yields in the United States, and if so, how much?
4: It does, in our view, by a pretty substantial amount. But, you know, I have to say I put the Fed, um, you know, also front and center in this. I think if the Fed was hiking rates here, there's a limit to how much uh, the lower yielding debt overseas can actually impact U.S. rates. I think what we have is a perfect storm of the Fed telling us that they've really taken the hiking side of the distribution out of the picture. Plus, we've got this negative yielding debt globally. Plus, the the net supply of Treasuries this year, you know, despite a very high deficit, net supply of Treasuries is 40% lower in in our projections in 2020 compared to 2019. So you've got this perfect storm, which is why, you know, if you think that the economy is strong and stocks are fair here and credit spreads are tight. The biggest question I'm hearing from clients are why aren't interest rates high? Why isn't the 10-year above 2%? Yeah. Well, you've got this confluence of various events, but, uh, but absolutely the uh, the negative yielding debt is part of it. Yeah. I, I don't think it's the 100% of the story, though.
0: Priya, thank you so much. Priya Mizzartini, TD Security Let's get to our, without question, global Wall Street conversation of the day. Betsy Grace uh, uh, made a claim following Japanese banks back when that mattered. It was a really serious business. She writes, more than anyone I know on the street with an acuity. How about this? Based on no additional rate cuts and a 10-year yield of about 1.9% per year, we expect median NIM down three beeps from 2.83% Q319, on and on and on. John, it's all numbers. It's acuity like nobody else. Betsy Graysick, Morgan Stanley.
1: Let's bring in Betsy, shall we? J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo City tomorrow. Betsy, Bank for America Goldman Wednesday. Morgan Stanley on Thursday. What's the focus for you and the team. What are you looking forward to?
5: So, a couple of things. Number one, we do get four Q earnings, but just as importantly, we get the 2020 outlook. So, there's a tale of uh, two messages here. Four Q, there's some parts that are going to miss. All right, and that's because Nim, as you know, we just discussed, Net is going to be works. under a little bit, you know, under a little bit of pressure in four Q. However, as we look out to 2020. The curve has steepened since September, all right? And that is going to mean that, you know, the uh, numbers have to come up. The street's behind, frankly. We are, uh, to put it in a nutshell, below the street on 4Q19, but we're above the street on 2020, due to NIM.
3: What's going to be the hottest area of potential growth? For a while, it was investment banking, which has been a stalwart uh, for a long time. Uh, Trading kind of has faded a bit as the net interest margins just, or the the sort of uh, margins just in general have shrunk. Consumers taking the helm, what's it gonna be heading into 2020?
5: Yep, so multi-layered answer, I'll try to be quick. Number one, for the quarter, is actually, I think, gonna be pretty good. I mean, we did have Jeffrey's report last week, and it was a bit of a blowout on the trading side. And we all know that last year, December, was a, was a wash. So the headline number for 4Q is gonna be pretty good. And then we get into the debate of, hey, to answer your question, 2020, how do you beat that? All right. So when you ask the question, how do you, how do you actually try to grow earnings in 2020? You're going to be focused a lot on the consumer. And yes, these are trading businesses, but big pieces of these companies are consumer-consumer lending. And the consumer is doing very
1: well Well, right Betsy, this is the important conversation for market participants. As you say, Q4, 18, terrible, Q4, 19, got to be better. That's what's known. It's what's not known. The big debate, where am I going to get that additional move in the stock price of some of these big names after a massive 19? What's going to drive it through 20? What are the big drivers?
5: Okay, so now on stocks, we're going to go from earnings to stock prices. On the stock side, you know, again, the consumer, Should be good. Um, The question is the multiple and how are you going to get that return on equity up? Because effectively, these stocks are a function of what the return on equity outlook is. So now you bring it to operating leverage. Managements have to control expenses and they have to grow their expenses less than revenues. Which was going
3: to bring me to my next point. How many more job cuts are we expected to see announced? Hmm. Wow, <laughs> that was
5: that was that, that was sound an energy good, Betsy. killer.
3: I mean, really, uh, within the the banking sector.
5: Okay, so when I when I'm I'm looking at the banks, I think there's going to be a shift in over time employment from you know kind of more processing to front office. Right now, this is something that has been in play. For many, many, many years, right? Look at Bank of America. You know you've had Brian. You've talked to him before where you've gotten the message that we are moving from the processing side where you've had historically much higher headcount to the front office, and that's been driving the positive operating leverage. So mm-hmm. I think the composition of the workforce is shifting um more tech, obviously, uh, in terms of total headcount numbers. I mean, total headcount numbers have been shrinking for a while. But are we done with that? I don't think you are uh, you can ever say you're done when the stocks, the most important driver of positive alpha in the bank stocks is operating leverage. So you're yeah. done is a function of what's your revenue outlook. And if your rates are coming down, like you were kind of alluding to, it's not in our models to have rates decline, but if rates are coming down, then you know that's another layer of expense management is there proof
0: to you? Is there evidence to you? And again, I go back Betsy Grasic to your, your wonderful acuity paragraph to paragraph with math. Technology (laughs) means lesser jobs or do you just shift the jobs from traditional banking over to computer programmers?
5: Uh, I think you end up with a higher um, operating leverage as you're doing this, right? Because computers plus people is more productive than just people okay i'm I'm sure i'm sure i'm gonna get beat up by a a number of folks for saying that but um you know over time you can do more with less how many beeps do you
0: pick up and leverage? How many beeps of operating this margin is, do you pick I up? I can't answer that To three decimal look. places, please. <laughs> <laughs> please,
5: please a please, question here. It, so it for, depends on how you are. It depends. On the are. Guy, it yeah. depends it's a know, cheap shot right. question. Yeah, so so it depends. In the fourth Surveillance quarter.
0: timeout.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Put in the penalty box. Fourth quarter, uh, trading leading. I'm wondering, does that mean that Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs are going to outperform?
5: So when we talk about trading... What we can say in looking at Jefferies is that fixed income did really well. So, you know, your fixed income oriented shops are, you know, what's going to do, you know, should do better, you would think. Now, what's driving fixed income, a lot of different pieces, credit, credit spreads tightening, fantastic, you know, and rates have done pretty well, it seems to me. So those are the institutions that I would think the ones that are more skewed to fixed income.
1: Capital returns in an election year. Do You see yeah. any political pressure on some of these big banks to scale things back, rein things in?
5: Oh, on the ask. Well, this is all about the CCAR stress test cycle and you know we're waiting for the Fed to give us the rules on that and I think the banks will take those rule sets and will apply them. So, it's a little premature for me to answer that question sure. without knowing what the rules are, but you know, more, you know, high level I would say, I think that bank balance sheets are well positioned. Um, and I don't think the political environment would would really influence your request.
1: The reason I asked, there was just an interesting interview with Moynihan and Barron's over the weekend. I'm sure many of our listeners yep. might've read that. And the CEO of Bank of America was asked basically the question about the capital return program. And his response essentially was that, what else are we gonna do with the money apart from give it back to investors? Because some of us in the on Wall Street, some of the big names, don't have the option of doing, say, an acquisition, right. already investing a lot back in the business. I'm just wondering what are the options left for some of these big banks as they look at some of the money that they have?
5: Well, I think you need to try to optimize your balance sheet as much as possible, but realize that, you know, given the rules and and regulations that are in place today, there is excess in the system and, you know, there's there's only so much you can do with that with, you know, you don't have that much degrees of freedom, I suppose is your point.
3: I kind of want to push back on that because we, there are a number of stories. I mean, it's a conversation. It's not of you. (laughs) You There there are a number of stories. (laughs) There there are a number of stories out there about how antiquated some of the technology is, some of these big banks relative uh, to where it could be and should be. I mean, why aren't we getting more investment on that front? You know what I mean? There are places that they could invest that could potentially uh, streamline their systems going forward. Am I I wrong? No. I mean, there, there's, Technology yes.
5: is the gift that keeps on giving for your investment, you know, spending. I guess that the point is that I would add to that is that your cap, your excess capital you have is in the billions of dollars. And you really can't throw that yeah. much incremental new IT budget spend on your organization because, well, because, because. It's not just throw the money and wave your magic wand and get a new system, right? You have to integrate right. with your back. You have to integrate. You have to do uh, your systems enhancements in a way that and, protect the money flow, not right. you know challenge the money flow. So I, I guess my basic point is, I don't think you can throw that much IT investment spend yeah. in one year at some one point. One quick
0: question. Yep. These guys go to Camp Davos. What's Are they going as happy campers? What's the mood of the
5: CEOs mm. as they go up Happy Valley this year? Well, versus last year, much, you know, brighter, uh, happier, but but I you know. but I would uh, cautiously optimistic.
0: Yeah. John, we're under pressure. I'm going to be taking the train up and back to Davos this year because I'm green. Can you see Jamie Diamond on the train? Do you know right? what that means?
1: You know what that actually means, don't you? That yeah, I have to class. guide Tom like, yeah. <laughs> through the trains and the two stops you need to do to get from Zurich <laughs> to Davos Kloester no, the Station. They it's like the Orient
0: Express. It's like, you know, going from Venice I'll to give
1: London. you a hand. <laughs> We're going to record this. <laughs> we should. Uh, we are going to record this train, this train Thank trip. Thank
0: you so much for coming in today. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Good yeah. to yeah. see yes,
5: you.
0: Well. Douglas Hulteekin is with the American Action Forum. He has all sorts of good academics, including sitting in a class, raising his hand respectfully to a gentleman named Bernanke, long ago and far away, at an esteemed school. But what he's really good at is putting together a website of the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, with important questions like the cost of replacing today's naval aviation fleet or use of the post-9-11 GI Bill or the accuracy of the CBO's baseline estimates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It is one of our great jewels the Congressional Budget Office, and we're thrilled that Dr. Holtz-Ekin could join us this morning. What is the CBO doing right now about our trillion-dollar deficits, Doug, that you want to study? What What are the smartest people they have doing where you're saying this is important?
6: Well, CBO is doing two things. Uh, number one, they are trying to raise awareness of the size of this problem, uh, the fact that it goes on as far as the eye can see, and that it will have deep economic implications and I think while you're aware, i'm aware uh, the vast majority of Americans yeah. simply do not understand the size of this problem. Uh, second thing they're doing is they're trying to figure out the end game right when when Congress finally comes to grip grips with this problem. What are they going to do? Raise taxes? Which programs are they going to have to change to, to cut spending? How can they do all this in a pro-growth fashion? They want to have a whole menu of options available for the Congress uh, that, that they, under, they, the CBO, understand and can explain uh, to their, their bosses up there on the Hill.
0: What is the GDP plug-in forward? I mean, this has always been, you know, hugely unpredictable, sort of like the Red Sox middle relief. But, <laughs> but, but, you know, what, what, what if GDP is now 1.8-ish, 2-ish, 2.2-ish, whatever the number is, isn't their plug-in a lot bigger than that?
6: Uh, they, they've stuck with a uh, forecast that sort of is built up in a very systemic fashion. They start with the demographics, yeah. you know, that – The population is aging. They they take the trends in total factor productivity to layer on top of that, and that gives you a potential growth rate in GDP. That number is in the ballpark of two percent. I didn't know that very much. Um, So, you know, uh, and eventually, as you and I know, the the economy will come back to that that potential, and so that limits the capacity to. Uh, grow our way out of this budget problem, for example. We simply won't. We're going to have to come to grips with it.
1: So what do you think the catalyst is, Doug, for the political class, the folks within the Beltway to recognize this scope of the problem here?
6: Well, first of all, I can tell you why they don't want to recognize it, because in the end, I don't think there's any way to get around the fact that we're going to have to grow as fast as possible, but that won't be enough. We're going to have to get more revenue, but that won't be enough. We're going to have to also control the growth of the entitlement spending programs, and so uh, two of those three things are bad news politically: raising taxes, cutting spending programs, and so they're dodging that for as long as they can. Um, I think there are two potential catalysts. Uh, one catalyst would be uh, some sort of economic event—you uh, know, not not even an extreme form of a sovereign debt crisis—but but something that makes it look like that the deficit is in and of itself causing problems in financial markets or the mainstream economy. Or yeah. an uprising by their constituents. And, and, you know, it's easy to see that because if we're in a representative democracy, but there isn't anything that a, a, a new young voter, a 25-year-old, can probably get through Congress because the money's all spoken for and then some. Right. So it's not crazy to believe that, some, that Americans might want, for example, a parental leave program, paid parental leave. There's no money for it. At some point, people are going to get sick of the fact that their government can't do anything they want. And that's right. going to come to I, I mean,
0: Doug, this is so important. I was explaining to someone that the VAT tax is big in Europe, but it's not big here. And they said, why? And I said, well, there's a small election with Canada where they threw the guy out for doing a VAT tax. <laughs> and now we've got Mr. Macron in France <laughs> trying to raise a retirement age, and it's been so protesting that... He had to backtrack on that over the weekend. I mean, you know, we can talk all we want about this Douglas Hulsey but the bottom line is, you know, you know, the politicians may try to be adults in the fiscal room, and then people go, "No, we don't like that."
6: Yeah, this is in the end uh, an issue of retail politics, and this is why I'm uh, so concerned about the lack of awareness of this problem broadly speaking. I mean, if you think about it. For eight years, President Obama said to the American people, there's nothing wrong with the federal budget. They can't be fixed by taxing rich people. And for three years, Donald Trump has said nothing. They have no idea there's a real problem because their leaders, literally the people that everyone elected to sit in the (laughs) Oval Office, have not leveled with them about what's going on. And in those circumstances, if Congress tries to fix it, they will throw them out. It'll look like it's it's pernicious, It's, it's done out of some political agenda, not because there's a real problem that needs to be addressed. And I think the first thing to do is get better public education on this issue. Are you surprised that the Republicans who control the Senate haven't taken a a stronger view here as it relates to, you know, the fiscal issues? Um, no, honestly, I hate to say that. I hate to admit it out loud. But no, I'm, I guess I'm not It's okay. No
0: one's but, listening.
6: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh you know, it, it, there's not much that uh, the Senate can do by itself, and so they're sort of resigned to uh, really just killing things instead of doing things, and there's nothing coming off in the House that, yeah. that, that's worth that kind of a fight, and I, I don't believe they think the president will back them. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I remember when uh, President Trump announced his candidacy, came down that escalator at Trump Tower, yeah. there and said, I'm not going to touch Social Security and Medicare, I'm just going to go get the money. I still don't know what that means, but he made it very yeah. clear he wasn't going to deal with the fiscal problems.
0: Douglas Holtz Eakin with us. He's with the American Action Forum, uh, are, are under debt and deficit. And now, Paul, we traipse where I've yet to hear anyone say they're for it. Douglas Holtz Eakin, what is a wealth tax?
6: A wealth tax uh, has been proposed by uh, both Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. It would be an annual tax based on the value of your wealth.
0: That's called a uh, dividend tax. It, you know,
6: we pay you know, we yeah, dividends. Yeah, that's and- on the return to wealth, not the stock of wealth. And <laughs> these would be unique because they're on the stock of wealth. So if you're worth $5 billion, that $5 billion is the tax base. And the rates on these uh, are you know, the progressive uh, marginal rates And these. Top rate for Sanders is 8%, top rate for Warren is 6%. So viewed from the traditional perspective of taxing the return to capital investments. <laughs> These can be quite draconian. Taxes. Well, they, can be the they can be larger than the actuarial assumption.
0: They can be larger than the actuarial assumption on any kind of yeah. tangible or intangible asset. I, I mean, Paul Sweeney's affected by this, folks. I'm not,
6: but uh, I mean, <laughs> these are. This is a big huge thing, Tom. No, it, no, but think about this. Everyone is affected because you would have to file to prove you're not that wealthy.
0: Yeah, well, I, I've I done mean, that year after year. Will be <laughs> Doug, seriously, is any other nation affected a constructive wealth tax?
6: No. Um, and many nations have um, instituted ineffective wealth taxes and then done a U-turn and, and gotten rid of them, uh, particularly in Europe. They've, they've been uh, tried. Um, you know, I, I think the problem here, you know, we did some research on this, which we put out last Friday. The problem here is that. Uh, people are misunderstanding the economics in a deep way. Uh, number one, the, the relatively few affluent households that were chosen to be the, the target of this tax were chosen because they hold a disproportionate fraction of the nation's investable wealth. And that's what you're taxing, the wealth, not the households. And that's a big economic tax, not, not a, a targeted one. The second is, as you mentioned, the rates are extremely high from an annual perspective, 100% or more. That's going to have negative economic consequences. And in our research... Uh, you know, we, we just trace it through, and what you find out is that if you don't uh, invest and you don't innovate, you lower productivity and real wage growth, and workers end up being worse off. And, and so, $0.63 cents of every dollar wealth tax you know, will be paid by labor.
0: This has been a wonderful visit. Douglas Holsey can thank you. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciated. And this morning on our debt and our deficit as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast